0: The Supreme Court was expected to rule this morning in the case West Virginia versus EPA. They did not issue a ruling. They may issue one tomorrow. It might be Wednesday, maybe later in the week. Nobody knows. Complicating matters further, given that it's been held to the end of this current Supreme Court session, folks were speculating that it will either be a remarkably terrible ruling, or that they'll decide that actually they really shouldn't be ruling at all in this case. I spoke with Richard Revez, a law professor at NYU School of Law and director of the Institute for Policy Integrity there, about that option earlier this year.
1: Well, before the oral argument, I had the very strong sense that the right thing for the court to do was not to decide this case and to dismiss it. Uh, The Supreme Court has a mechanism for dismissing cases as improvidently granted. And it's not something it does frequently, but on average, it's been doing it about twice a year uh, in recent years. And this case seems like an excellent candidate for that disposition because there is no regulation in place. Um, The Clean Power Plan is not in place. Um, uh, and the affordable clean energy rule is not in place. A clean power plant, of course, was the Obama administration regulation of the greenhouse gas emissions of existing power plants, and the affordable clean energy rule was the Trump administration's toothless and potentially counterproductive replacement. Uh, but neither are in place, and neither would go back into effect no matter what the court does. So essentially, no matter what the court does, there's not going to be a clean power plant in place. And there's not going to be an affordable clean energy rule in place. So all the court could do is give EPA advice. This is known in this lingo as an advisory opinion on what its future rule might look like. But the federal courts don't have the authority to issue advisory opinions. Um, that's been clear since essentially the beginning of the republic. So... Um, Going into the case, I was, you know, the strong sense that this was the right thing for the court
2: to do.
0: And what was your sense of the oral arguments, and where it, this seems to be headed?
1: Well, I mean, coming out of the case, I still think that that is the right thing for the court to do for exactly the same reason that I thought right. about that before on the argument. But I, you know, have to say that. While these issues were discussed, it's not clear to me that five justices um, would find that approach compelling. You never know. You can be surprised. You can't read too much from the questions in oral argument, but it didn't look like that way of thinking about the case was foremost in the minds of five of the
3: justices.
0: Attorney Jason Rylander from the Center for Biological Diversity expanded on this idea.
3: Yeah, it's really interesting. Back when the Clean Power Plan was uh, originally developed by the Obama administration, industry groups sued over it. And the litigation was ongoing, but uh, the Supreme Court reached out and issued an unprecedented stay uh, without even allowing the DC Circuit to complete oral arguments or issue a ruling. So for whatever reason, the contours of EPA's authority of, under the Clean Air Act seem to be uh, of interest to this court. And here again, uh, they've taken a case uh, that they really don't have to take because the Biden administration has pledged that it's going to develop its own rules for regulating uh, stationary power plant emissions. And that those rules may not look anything like either the clean power plan or the affordable clean energy plan that the Trump administration developed, which is also not in effect. So the real concern here is that this court is basically issuing an advisory opinion about EPA's authority in the absence of an actual rule in front of it uh, for it to review. The court has already ruled in a couple of different cases that EPA has authority to regulate greenhouse gases. Uh, they said so first in Massachusetts v. EPA. They said so in AEP versus Connecticut case, and they also said so in, in another case uh, that, that came a couple years later. And so, you know, to the extent that the court wants to get into these sort of major questions about what Congress has spoken clearly to in terms of of authority for agencies to regulate, that big question has already been addressed. What we're really getting into now is sort of the weeds of whether Section 111 allows EPA to create uh, a best a system of emissions reduction that uh, would lead to the most effective and efficient reductions in, in uh, greenhouse gas pollution? And, and that's the kind of question that is usually left to agency discretion.
0: Like Reves explained, there is precedent for the court to opt not to rule in cases where it really makes no sense for it to. But given all the other norms these justices are breaking, it's hard to believe they'll go that route. Especially given that Justices Kavanaugh and Barrett consistently brought up something called the major questions doctrine during oral arguments. Here's Rylander again.
3: I think to put it to put it simply, uh, There's clearly an anti-regulatory appetite among certain justices of this court. And and we've seen that in a number of different cases dealing with the extent of agency authority. And this idea that they can use this major questions doctrine to kind of look at a regulation and decide in the abstract uh, whether Congress granted authority to address that issue without even really looking at an actual rule is bizarre. Uh, it is an expansion of judicial power in a way that is really pretty inappropriate. And, and we've seen commentators you know, kind of across the political spectrum warning against this expanded use of the major questions doctrine to attack agency rulemaking. But that, that seems to be where a few of the justices want to go.
0: This is part of the general right wing project to attack the so-called administrative state if you spend any time at all online, you might hear conservatives say things like, well, actually regulatory agencies are unconstitutional. In other words, the constitution doesn't allow for Congress to hand over its powers to agencies. The argument for agencies, of course, has historically been that legislators can't possibly be experts on everything, and it makes a certain amount of sense to keep the nuts and bolts of applying legislation free of the sort of grandstanding and influence peddling that has been a hallmark of American politics. But for many conservatives, not only is there no need for the EPA to develop an emissions reduction plan, absent explicit instructions to do so from Congress, But also, there's really no need for an EPA at all. You might recall an episode we put out earlier this year with Lisa Graves. She's a former Senate investigator who went on to run the Center for Media and Democracy for several years before starting her own research firm, True North. Lisa has been tracking the right-wing project to take over the judiciary almost since its inception. Here she is explaining some of the structural changes that cases like West Virginia versus EPA are driving towards.
4: Yeah, I mean, they, they've declared, you know, this war on the so-called administrative state. Obviously, there's roots of that in Reagan and some of the lawyers who were active then who became judges. And uh, some of the some of the people who are in the judiciary have been, um, you know, in my view, very partisan, very right wing Um uh, you know, sort of politicians in robes who are attempting to restructure the modern American state through judicial rulings. But you know, uh, 80% um, of the of the of the Supreme Court has been appointed by Republicans, and they just haven't been doctrinaire enough uh, for um, these uh, uh, you know very elite reactionaries like Leonard Leo.
0: Leonard Leo, of course, ran the Federalist Society for decades. It's a group of conservative lawyers and justices who have been integral to the project to use the judicial system to further a conservative agenda. Leo himself handpicked many of the justices on the Supreme Court bench today. Lisa Graves helped to make the general public more aware of the Federalist Society's role in picking justices when they began telling Trump who to nominate. Leo and the Federalist Society are also deeply entwined with another key component of the right-wing legal machine, RAGA, the Republican Attorneys General Association. That organization was created as a reaction to the tobacco litigation in the 1990s, which was kicked off by Democratic Attorneys General. At the time, Democrats outnumbered Republicans in state attorneys general offices almost two to one. The Republican Attorneys General in Alabama, South Carolina, and Texas decided to form a group that would dedicate itself to getting more Republican Attorneys General elected and working together to advance a conservative legal agenda. The Texas Attorney General at that time was now Senator John Cornyn. His second in command was Ted Cruz two guys who come up over and over again in the context of these big Supreme Court cases. At any rate, in its first decade, Raga was just focused on winning elections. Then, in 2010...
5: Mr. Olson, are you taking the position that there is no difference in the First Amendment rights of an individual? A corporation, after all, is not endowed by its creator with inalienable rights. So, is there any distinction that Congress could draw between corporations and natural human beings for purposes of campaign finance?
6: What the Court has said in the First Amendment context, New York Times versus Sullivan, Jean versus Associated Press, and over and over again, is that corporations are persons entitled to protection under the First Amendment.
0: That was the late Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg questioning attorney Ted Olson during the landmark Citizens United case, in which the court ultimately ruled that corporations have the same free speech protections as individuals and that money, in this case money spent on a movie-length political attack ad, is speech. That ruling opened up a flood of dark money into politics, Billions of dollars coming from who knows where to further who knows what agenda. And suddenly, RAGA became a key political tool. Here's Graves again.
4: Something has happened over the last 20 years. And I had looked at this back when I was working on the Senate Judiciary Committee in terms of this the rise of RAGA, the Republican Attorneys General Association, where we know that it's a pay-to-play operation. We know that it's it's uh it has had enormously distorting effect on u.s law um it provides a mechanism for corporations to pass money through to help uh attorneys general uh in ways that they would not be able to individually solicit for their own campaigns given their role their regulatory role over those very industries Mm. um and that's been going on since raga was created back uh more than 20 years ago now, and it has accelerated under some of the attorneys general who have uh, led it, like Scott Pruitt, who was, you know, in my view, uh, another corrupt individual, uh, someone who uh, was uh, lax uh, on ethical rules, to say the least, and who was willing to do the bidding of the oil industry in attacking climate legislation and climate rules, even the very modest CPP, uh, the Clean Power Plan, uh, rules um, to advance the interests of the funders of RAGA.
0: Here's where we come back to West Virginia versus EPA. It's a RAGA case. Some might even say the RAGA case. It was the jewel of Scott Pruitt's reign as the head of RAGA. You might remember that Pruitt went on from there to run the EPA, an agency he very much wanted to get rid of.
4: These um, Republican attorneys general behave uh, in general. Um, they are operating most often, we've seen at the behest of the industries, that they're soliciting funds for to fund Raga.
7: That's and interesting.
4: Beyond Raga's funding, the corporate funders of Raga, we know that it. Now is receiving a substantial amount of money from uh, one of the emerging uh, big dark money operations, which is Leonard Leo's operation, which was funded, um, you know, uh, funded through a group that's now defunct, um, that uh, uh, has subsequently, you know, basically been rebranded or renamed as Leo has has re-launched uh, his, his operations after it was exposed by the Washington Post last year. Mm. Um, so RAGA now is um, not just a recipient of of donations from big oil and and uh, big huge corporations, but it's also a major recipient of funds in, in which the source is completely unknown and they've particularly targeted states uh, and state AG's offices to advance Leonard's longer term uh, agenda, which he described to the Council on National Policy and this was um, documented in that Washington Post story, but he described in, that, in a speech to CNP last year that, his, that America stands at the precipice of what he called the revival of what he described as the quote structural constitution. Uh, and he told uh, the CNP audience um, that no one alive in that room had seen the type of legal revolution that America was about to see based on the appointments to the Supreme Court and other courts to revive this so-called structural constitution to the law as it existed pre New Deal. Um, Mm. And uh, that affects a whole host of laws. It affects civil rights laws, it, it it will affect labor laws and labor rights, environmental regulation and more. And it's an attempt in my view to um, really limit the ability of Congress to pass laws, to limit the ability of agencies to regulate corporations, um, and and to um, sort of change uh, the whole modern structure of uh, government, basically, in terms of the administrative agencies, but also the rights of citizens and the relationships between the United States as as a government and other governments,
0: that is the master plan that West Virginia versus EPA is just one part of.
4: It would be an extreme, radical, reactionary agenda to change our rights and ch- and limit our powers and our democracy through our representatives in ways that serve a, a very elite agenda, the agenda of the people who fund Leonard Leo and Leo's operations and fund the RAGA, the Republican Attorney General's Association, and have been um, really attempting to work a legal revolution through offices that we would otherwise consider to be independent. It would be nice to have attorneys general of states who um, were not so captive to advancing the interests of Charles Koch, Um, but unfortunately, we are in an era in which those interests um, have been dominating.
0: The EPA is, of course, not the only regulatory agency that these interests would like to see disappear. But we don't have to just stand by and watch it happen. I'm going to spend the second half of this episode talking about what might be up ahead and some of the tools still available to us, even if all of the worst case scenario predictions about West Virginia versus EPA come true this week. It's coming up after this quick break. New Year's resolutions are almost destined to fail. I resolve almost every year to work less, and we all know it's not going to happen. <laughs> but one thing I have been able to stick to, and you can too, is switching up the way you do laundry in 2024 and grabbing Earth Breeze. I know what you're thinking, laundry is not so fun. Those huge heavy plastic jugs measuring out the right amount, getting goo all over the place. It's annoying. EarthBreeze eco sheets totally changed the game. Unlike powder or liquid, EarthBreeze actually looks like a dryer sheet, but it's ultra concentrated laundry detergent, and it's super easy. You just throw it into your laundry and that's it. There's no measuring, there's no lugging anything around. Your laundry comes out clean, it smells great, I love it. It's genuinely made my life easier. It's also dermatologist tested, hypoallergenic, free of bleach and dyes so it's perfect for every load you'll never run out of detergent again thanks to earth breeze's easy flexible subscription you can adjust pause or cancel at any time with no hidden fees or penalties and you save a whopping 40% when you subscribe plus shipping is always free and eco sheets are packaged in a slim cardboard envelope that saves a ton of space it also gets rid of one more plastic thing in your life. And the company has donated over a hundred million loads of laundry and counting to those in need. Right now, my listeners can get started with Earth Breeze and save 40%, 40, 4, 0. Go to earthbreeze.com drilled. That's E-A-R-T-H-B-R-E-E-Z-E.com slash drilled for 40% off your subscription. Okay, so when it comes to West Virginia versus EPA, first, I think it's important to be clear about what is and isn't actually being argued here. Because even with the Supreme Court, they can't just rule on stuff that's not even vaguely mentioned in the case. I've been seeing a lot of overstatements about what's at stake here, everything from the court making it illegal to regulate CO2 to it shutting the EPA down altogether. And look, I'm not saying that either or both of those is out of the realm of possibility. At some point, there are certainly targets. They just wouldn't happen as a result of this case. What the justices can do in this particular case is say that under the Clean Air Act, the EPA does not have the authority to create an emissions reduction system or plan or policies. That would, in effect, overturn the precedent set by Massachusetts versus EPA. That was the case a few years ago when the court said the EPA did have the authority to regulate greenhouse gases. Here's Jason Rylander again to explain.
3: I, I think the worst case scenario here is that they cabin EPA's authority in a way that is going to make it more difficult for the Biden administration and future administrations to uh, uh, regulate effectively under Section 111 of the Clean Air Act. The good news is the Clean Air Act is broader than that. And there are a lot of other ways that we can get at greenhouse gas pollutions. And we also know that you know greenhouse gas pollution has emerged from things other than stationary coal and um, gas power plants. In fact, the market alone has already produced greater emissions reductions than had been predicted if the Clean Power Plan had gone into effect.
0: One way to get at greenhouse gases, especially if your top concern is CO2, is through an authority the EPA already very much has, which is regulating air pollution under the Clean Air Act more broadly, specifically particulate matter. So this is the stuff that comes from combusting fossil fuels. It's what comes out of exhaust pipes. It's what is released at factories, power plants, all of that stuff. And the EPA already regulates that and has already moved to tighten those regulations. Another way to get at greenhouse gases is an approach we talked about in a recent episode, invoking the Toxic Substances
7: Control Act
0: or TSCA.
7: EPA is well aware of all of these things and they're worried about it and all the staff is is running around wishing that they could do something. The problem is they felt that they didn't have the authority uh, and that none of the laws gave them the authority. In fact, the authority has been hiding in plain sight the entire time under the Toxic Substances Act, but there was sort of a perceived wisdom that the Toxic Substances Control Act didn't work based on how the agency got hammered over asbestos. And it was actually the agency's fault cuz they didn't do their due diligence. But they thought they had a slam dunk there. It didn't work. They kind of threw up their hands and say, "We have to work under the Clean Air Act, which is an abysmal law."
0: That is former EPA scientist Don Viviani speaking at a press conference earlier this month. He says, "Climate advocates have been sleeping on Tosca, which provides a much stronger basis for the EPA's authority to regulate greenhouse gases."
7: This sort of problem is exactly the thing that Tusk was designed for. Congress uh, knew that there were there were problems out there that were multimedia, multi-program, that a single uh, a single media act couldn't handle, and that we needed something more expansive. It was designed to take care of things that the other laws weren't properly taking care of. And if you look back at the history of climate, it's quite clear that none of the other laws are taking care of this. So this is exactly what Tosca was designed to do. Viviani
0: has signed on to a petition filed with the EPA requesting that the agency make a determination under Tosca that greenhouse gas emissions pose a risk to human health and the environment, and then regulate it as such. Other petitioners include climate scientist Dr. James Hansen and climate accountability expert Richard Heady who authored the famed Carbon Majors Report, which pinpointed the 70 companies most responsible for climate change.
2: Alaska actually was used in 1978 for just this purpose with respect to CFCs. On the ground, in the rule, that CFCs were uh, endangering the ozone layer and presented a serious risk with respect to global warming. CFCs are also a gas and therefore, you know, there actually is strong precedent in EPA's own actions in utilizing this statute to kickstart an effort to get rid of uh, that potent pollutant that has very strong greenhouse gas forcing effect as well. It
0: also has the benefit of clear language around the EPA's authority language that was strengthened with bipartisan support in 2016.
7: They just reauthorized the the act in in, uh, in 2016. Mm. It was it was a bipartisan uh, reauthorization. So clearly, this is the the, the, the language that we're that that TOSC is supposed to deal with unreasonable unre- risk is recent, and it was a bipartisan uh, it was a bipartisan passage.
0: Dr. James Hansen says he hopes this effort will give the agency the authority to act before it's too late.
6: We're so far off and that just hasn't hasn't sunk in. And you know, even though we have uh international organization the framework convention on climate change and the conferences of the parties some of the stuff that they're coming out with is is pretty nonsensical the uh the last cop the the head said well we've kept within the possibility to stay under 1.5 degrees warming that's absolute bullshit uh there's too much inertia in the energy system uh and in the the warming that's in the pipeline, just because this the planet is now out of balance by an enormous amount, uh, doesn't sound like much—a uh, little more than a one watt per meter squared—but that contains more than one degree Celsius additional warming, and we're already at one point two. So, uh, yeah, we've we've uh, passed the point of being dangerous, but we can still deal with the situation if we begin to make uh, fossil fuels pay their cost to society.
0: Multiple climate cases all over the world, more than 1,800, in fact, are trying to do that as well, all of which will continue irrespective of the outcome of West Virginia versus EPA. Dan Gelpern, Executive Director and General Counsel for the Climate Protection and Restoration Initiative, is the lawyer spearheading the Tosca EPA petition. And he says the outcome of West Virginia versus EPA shouldn't have any impact on that effort at all.
2: 111D of the Clean Air Act has nothing to do with our petition under the Toxic Substances Control Act. 111D of the Clean Air Act confers authority on EPA to uh, compel emissions controls from existing power plants. And there is a specific question as to whether the Obama EPA, in fashioning the now dormant clean power plan, overstepped its bounds and read into that provision of law authority to restrict emissions outside the the fence line of power plants, rather than just inside the fence line of power plants. So that's a specific, fairly narrow technical issue. Those, including West Virginia and a number of other conservative states and a portion of the fossil fuel industry, are urging the Supreme Court in that case to uh, rule much more broadly to say that without express language in the statute, no federal agency can really do much to uh, restrict economic activity at the center of industrial policy within a a sector of, of the economy. And so they're seeking to have a very Broad prohibition against not only the EPA but other agencies' attempts to uh, restrict activity that pre- even where it presents a significant risk to human health or the environment. But, you know, it's very unclear to me whether the Supreme Court will take up that invitation. I'm not saying it's impossible, we will see. But the language at issue in section one, uh, 111D, I think while the EPA did construe it correctly, it is far more vague or ambiguous than the language that we're relying on under the Toxic Substance Control Act in our petition. All that is to say, therefore, that I think that even if the Supreme Court uh, rules uh, very broadly, in West Virginia versus EPA, the legal basis for our petition under the Toxic Substance Control Act should be unaffected.
0: Which doesn't necessarily mean that a case about the EPA's authority to regulate greenhouse gases under Tosca wouldn't also land at the Supreme Court. But Galpern says he's ready. Can you walk through some of the potential outcomes here? I know you're expecting legal challenges, what might those be?
2: Well, we're in a litigious society. This is a industry, the fossil fuel industry, the predominant source of greenhouse gas emissions in this country that is used to getting its way. On the other hand, there have been a a series of successful regulatory programs that have limited the industry's unfettered right to treat the atmosphere as an open sewer. And it has adjusted well, and we believe that it would adjust well to this type of regulation. That is to say, the industry would be transformed into an energy industry. Just last week, the United Nations General uh, Secretary called for the phase out of fossil fuels worldwide. They don't—they don't have to go to court and challenge this. They could participate in good faith in the rulemaking process, and we come up with a a reasonable pathway. To get from uh, disaster to safety. In the alternative, they could challenge uh, EPA's decision. It would, I think, be legal insanity for them to argue that greenhouse gas emissions do not present a risk of injury to health or the environment. I think that they would certainly lose on that. We are prepared to go to court to defend a favorable agency determination, and we will do what's necessary, you know, going from one end of this country to another, to galvanize the public, to ensure that the administration has the political support it needs to do what is right here, and that is to take strong action to um, preserve our nation from the uh, continuing threat of devastating climate change. It's within reach because of this petition and pointing out you know, this strong tool that has uh, been hiding in plain view. And it's a tool that therefore should be used to address what the president has called an existential risk an existential threat.
0: And then there are the short-term economic levers, particularly in the form of financial incentives to move quickly away from fossil fuels. Biden's recent use of the Defense Production Act to ramp up production of both heat pumps and solar panels and lift the tariff on solar imports for a couple years is a key example. Climate advocates have been asking Biden for years to declare a climate emergency in order to make moves exactly like this. Here's the president's climate advisor, Gina McCarthy, explaining more about it on CBS News the president actually took three very decisive actions yesterday. And that was done in response to an urgent need to grow the domestic energy economy and strengthen our energy security. We were seeing the potential for significant layoffs, solar projects not coming online, grid instability as a result. We wanted to protect those jobs. We wanted to grow and spurred our domestic economy, so we provided a small window of opportunity, really, which is a 24-month bridge that's going to jumpstart our solar imports while we reinforce the integrity of our trade laws and those processes by taking action to really spur uh, the
2: domestic production of solar right here in the United States of America.
0: Now, climate advocates want Biden to do more invoking the Defense Production Act, and it could be a way to mitigate some of the damage of a bad ruling in West Virginia versus EPA. So there is some hope that if the West Virginia versus EPA ruling really does dramatically curb the government's ability to regulate greenhouse gas emissions, these short term economic levers could go a long way. Meanwhile, Lisa Graves says those who want to see climate action need to be as imaginative and ruthless as those who have sought to block it for decades
4: you know, people are cynical or whatever. Um, and, and, you know, maybe there's some cause for cynicism given the political landscape we've inherited, particularly mm-hmm. in the Senate with so much, so many coke backed senators there. But the fact is, is that, you know, um, the right is almost unbound in its imagination
5: mm-hmm. of where it
4: wants to take America in terms yeah. of how far they're willing to, you know, basically roll back the 20th century. Um, yeah. You know, and it and and yet and yet it's not, you know, it's not described as radical or reactionary. It's described as, you know, these ideas, we're just debating these ideas. In fact, <laughs> they're seeking to implement them and they've been they've been having success really since the Reagan administration.
0: A sweeping and restrictive ruling in West Virginia versus EPA also doesn't rule out the possibility of Congress passing a law that would regulate greenhouse gas emissions. But that has not worked to date even when Democrats had a much stronger majority in the government. So there's not a ton of optimism around that path. At the farthest left end of the spectrum, some progressives are saying, look, It's time to think past our existing structures, particularly as we see them failing all around us. I spoke with Max Berger, one of the founders of Momentum, a movement incubator that helped launch the Sunrise Movement, to get his take on this a few months ago.
5: If you just were to step back and look at the U.S. as a country, it would be very clear, you know, the current constitutional arrangement um, is not long for this world. You, You know, you have a significant subset of the population particularly the white population although not only that is really terrified about the transition away from a white majority population to a multiracial majority and uh, that's happening in the context of you know world historic inequality right so you, you really do have the conditions for uh, ethno-nationalist authoritarian politics, right? Like call it fascist, call it ethno-nationalist authoritarian, call it white supremacist, a politics in which there is a significant number of people that are willing to use violence uh, and, and do not really subscribe to um, the beliefs that are required of participating in a democracy because they're afraid of losing power within that democracy to other ethnic groups. Um, that's the kind of beginning of my analysis here. Um, and if you, if you take that, you know, as a kind of skeleton key for what's going on, you're a lot becomes more clear in that, you know, that group of people that kind of white supremacist, uh, plurality is not big enough to govern the country, but it is big enough to take over the Republican party, um, as Trump showed, um, and, uh, through their control of the Republican party uh, are able to take control of state and federal governments because we have a very anti-democratic political system because, you know, our political system uh, is the result of a compromise with slaveholders. And so vastly over represents small rural states um, that white people have more power. And so um, that white supremacist plurality can take over the federal government, state governments with a minority of votes. And, you know, because of other aspects of our <laughs> uh, anti-democratic political system, the Senate, as we're seeing now, um, the uh, Electoral College, as you know, we we are kind of threatened with every four years that there's going to be another uh, instance in which the um, the the winner of the popular vote does not become president. And, you know, that has happened recently a number of times. Um, and, uh, and the two party system, which allows for that, you know, let's say 25 to 40% of the population to, to govern. Uh, we are not, we're not going to see the multiracial majority, um, have an opportunity to turn its, uh, will into law in the next 10 to 15 years. Um, and I think uh, the amount of tension that that will generate will break the political system. I, I don't think that you know, I, I don't think that the, the amount of, of, of friction that will be created in the, the, um, in, the in the popular will of being stymied in that way, um, particularly when the people in power are taking active steps to uh, move us away from competitive uh, elections and limit people's rights. Uh, I, I cannot imagine a situation in which the multiracial majority takes that lying down. And I also don't think that the um, white nationalist uh, plurality is is going to um, become less vociferous in their opposition to a multiracial democracy. So, you know, and, and if you were to talk about this with a uh, comparative political scientist, they would tell you, you know, if you have um, this kind of uh, uh, demographic transition happening, the worst case scenario, our political system is basically designed as poorly as possible to manage That kind of a demographic transition because the two-party system collapses all divisions in society into a zero-sum, all-or-nothing, competitive, existential um conflict. Uh, And you know, when that gets racialized or ethnicized, um it, it can become dangerous very quickly. Uh, you know, we're as polarized as any time since before the Civil War. Um and In addition, you know, the with the with the separately elected presidency and a bicameral system, we have what what uh, political scientists refer to as a profusion of veto points. Right. So it's very, very difficult for bills to become law, uh, as we see with, you know, anything. But the example I always use is is gun control. And, um, you know, after name a massacre people always ask if this stuff is 85% approval rating why can't it pass uh, and the truth of the matter is that very little can pass you know very little very few laws make it through the uh, our system and um the, the, you know there's a stat that i think does not bode well i tweeted this the other day and people thought i was saying this uh, not in jest but you know the, there's a, there's a stat that um, the united states is the only system that has a separately elected executive branch That has not at some point collapsed into dictatorship. Um, Because in presidential systems, systems with a separate, um, uh, separately elected uh, executive, what happens is there's a conflict between the president and the Congress, and there's some external crisis that requires action, and the Congress is incapable of or unwilling to respond, and then the executive takes the authority to do so without the approval of the legislature. And once that is broken, it's very hard to take back. Um, and I think some version of that is more or less inevitable in the next five years. So I, 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 the way I say it is like, look, we're going to get a new political system. The question is, does it happen before authoritarian, authoritarianism and civil war or after? And I would love for it to be before, (laughs) you know, as an American, I would love to not have to experience those things, but I don't I don't think we're going to. So I think we're looking more at a, you know, post dictatorship, post conflict situation and, and less at like, how do we organize a political revolution before?
0: So there you have it, a few potential avenues for climate action, even in the face of a worst case scenario ruling. One thing I want to emphasize here, it's not that the ruling in West Virginia versus EPA doesn't matter, or that it's not justifiably anxiety inducing, it is. It's more that it doesn't make the political reality of tackling climate in the US that much worse than it has been for years, which isn't good news. It just means that a lot of the same fights will continue. And of course, I'll be back with an update and a deep dive on that ruling as soon as it's out. That's it for this week. To read or endorse the petition and track its progress, check out CPRclimate.org. We'll bring you an update when the EPA makes a decision, too. Before you exit out of your podcast app, if you could just take a moment to rate or review the podcast, I'd really appreciate it. It helps the show reach more listeners. Thanks for that. And thanks for listening. And we'll see you next time. Drilled is an original production of the Critical Frequency Podcast Network. Our producer is Jules Bradley. Our editor is Jude Joffe block Mixing, sound design, and scoring by Peter Duff. And I'm your host and Amy Westerwald. If you would like to get bonus content, ad-free episodes, and access to exclusive merchandise, please check out our Patreon at patreoncom drilled. You can also sign up for our newsletter at drilledpodcast.com. And you can follow us on Twitter at We Are Drilled.